You are listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to my Sunday roast on Virgin Radio Pride. Now then, what's been going on this week? If anyone was watching the Hungarian Grand Prix, you'll have seen German Formula One champion Sebastian Vettel wearing a Pride-themed T-shirt. He was protesting the Hungarian law banning the representation of LGBTQ plus people like you and I in the media and schools. It was a real moment, I have to say, and really good to see. Unfortunately, he was given a reprimand by the organisers. But, in my eyes at least, that only makes him even more of a hero for sticking up for us. In other sporting news, the Tokyo Olympics have been continuing and Team GB have been continuing to be showered with medals. We've spoken before about the levels of queer representation at this year's Games. And this week, history was made as the first openly trans athlete, Laurel Hubbard from New Zealand, competed in the weightlifting. She didn't do brilliantly and she did say afterwards that she felt uncomfortable being labelled and held up as a trailblazer. But news of her participation, at least, was picked up by media all over the world. And I think that's a really important step forward. Back home, back in the UK, the producers of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here have confirmed that the show will stay in this country for the next series. It's returning to its castle location setting in Wales. Here on Virgin Radio Pride, we had a former winner of the show, Christopher Biggins, taking the brilliant Steve Denyer through his Pride playlist. If you missed the show, or if you missed any of our shows, you can catch up by searching for Virgin Radio Pridecast wherever you get your podcasts from. For now, though, let's get on with today's Sunday Roast. As usual, everyone is welcome to get involved. If you want to contact us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK. Please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. And I am on at Matt Kane Writer. Or, if you prefer, you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. Please do get in touch and give us everything you've got. Now, what have we got on today's show? My guests are, first of all, we've got Callum McSwiggan. He's a YouTuber specialising in content exploring LGBTQ plus issues, mental health and sex and relationships. He's also an author, having published his brilliant travel memoir, Eat Gay Love, last year. This was longlisted for the Polari First Book Prize and it tells the story of Callum's own travels intertwined with insights into the lives of other queer people he meets along the way. Callum and I are going to be joined by Alex Woolhouse. She's the pro bono and legal strategy coordinator of transgender youth charity Mermaids. She also hosts the She Said, They Said podcast with Virgin Radio Pride's very own Shivani Darve, in which they discuss the latest news affecting the trans, non-binary and gender diverse communities, as well as answering listener questions about relationships, politics and gender identity. 
but what are we going to be discussing on our show? Get a load of this. Firstly, are issues around body image amplified and intensified within the LGBTQ plus community? Secondly, with some features of queer culture being adopted by mainstream society, how much of this is cultural appropriation and when should we call it out? Thirdly, in the LGBTQ plus community, do cisgender gay men have it the easiest? And do we need to check our privilege? And finally, with Love Island back on our screens and getting so many people talking on social media, what do we make of it? Hello to my guests, Callum McSwiggan and Alex Woolhouse. Hello. How are you guys today? Oh, just fabulous. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, we're going to be having a little chat, each of us, in between the debates. But I'm going to get cracking straight away with our first big topic. And it is a big one to start. It is body image. So, issues around body image affect pretty much everyone in society. I'm sure all of us have found ourselves under pressure to have a good body at some stage. I know I have. And I'm sure all of us have at some stage been made to feel disappointed with the reality of that body. Callum's nodding already, which is a good start. <laughs> in mainstream society, for a long time now, there's been much better awareness of the issues of body around body image for women, straight cis women, and of the damage these can do to women's mental health and sense of self-worth. More recently, there's been a growing awareness of the pressures men are under and the damage this can inflict on straight cis men. But the question we're going to be discussing is, are issues around body image amplified and intensified within the LGBTQ plus community. Basically, are things even worse for us? Callum, how do you feel about your body? That 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 that, that is a that is a big question. Um I, I, I think I found a lot of confidence in my body recently, in recent years. And I think that stems from quite a I don't want to say problematic because I'm talking about myself, but I think I've started, you know, I've, in recent years, I've started um, feeling the pressure to go to the gym and spending more time working out, working on my body, etc. And kind of achieving that body that so many people aspire to and, and, and go for. And, and now I feel like I'm in that place. I have that confidence. But that feels like a problematic thing to say because my body was absolutely fine before. My body was great before. And yet I felt so, so insecure to the point that I felt that I, I had to start working out or I just couldn't find that kind of happiness within myself. Where do you think that pressure was coming from? What was it that made... I mean, are you able to pinpoint the kind of main factors that were making you feel bad about your body, as you say, when it was perfectly fine before? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, I don't, want, I don't want to put all the blame here because I don't think that's fair, um, especially because you and I both have, have, have worked in this industry. But I do think, um, you know, if you look back at historical kind of LGBT plus magazines, for instance, particularly mm. magazines aimed at gay men, um, you know, for, for throughout the 90s and, and the early parts of the noughties and perhaps a little bit beyond that, every single cover would be, you know, you're ripped kind of it, it would either be your your big ripped muscly jock guy or your or your super skinny feminine twink and there was and, and there was nothing else so it was like you have to f fit into one of these two things or you felt a little bit like you weren't 
valid. Well, it's interesting you should say that because I, by the time I took over at Attitude, it was 2016 to 2018. There was much greater awareness of that kind of thing. Yeah. So we were doing things like the body issue, talking about body image. Um, and, you know, we were trying to do our thing to combat negative feelings that gay men could have towards their bodies. But whenever we did put um, a cover star on the cover who had a great body, um, usually the jock type that you um, mm. just mentioned, our sales would go through the roof. Yeah. If we ever had um, a cover star who didn't have a good body or they were older and kept their clothes on, um, the sales go, go down. Sales would literally, I mean, the lowest selling, actually, I don't know whether I should name his <laughs> name, but, um, <laughs> I don't know whether I should say who it was, but the lowest selling cover um, that I remember, the era that I was associated with Attitude, was an older, clever, intelligent gay man who mm. wasn't known for his looks and the kind of person everybody would have a go at us for not having on the cover. And when we did, they didn't like it. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's very, very frustrating, isn't it? And I, and I do think to, uh, well, I think we all can be guilty of it to an extent. Well, I perhaps shouldn't speak for everybody else, but I know that I can be guilty of this. I might be, I might, I might be, you know, in the in the shop, and I might see the the gossy attitude or gay times or whatever it is, and I might see some pretty beautiful twink on the cover and go, oh, I I, I must buy this. So but so I do it too. I know, but um, actually, that doesn't disprove the point, does it? It just means that we're that conditioning is so strong that yes. we're all affected. Right. How about Alex? Yeah, I mean, I'm a trans woman. Um, so I have the, you know, the media telling me because I'm a woman that I have to have um, massive, a massive bum and massive boobs. But I also have to be stick thin. But I also get that it from, you know, the trans perspective where I have to look a certain way in order to get respect in this society. And I have to look a way that is very traditionally feminine and so for that you have to be kind of slender you have to conform to this sort of um trans body ideal for women which is sort of this like dua lipa like very tall very slim willowy trans women and that is what is seen as desirable it's so intense for trans people isn't it because your body is perceived as the site for self-actualization. Mm -hmm. And also this pressure that um, if you can pass for cis, you know, this idea that you're somehow more valid mm. as a trans person, it's so, um, it's so complicated, isn't it? Yeah, and you're safer. You're safer if you are, you know, cis passing because you can just go around your day-to-day -day life as though you are not trans as though you are not you know an object of mal malignity in society and so you have these body image issues but you also have the added thing of gender dysphoria where you know you don't like the body that you were naturally born with so yeah I can, I can really see that and what about um you know we can talk about being made to feel negatively about our own bodies what you know what damage can this do to our mental health what what is the impact of this would you say Callum well again I think it's, a, it's such a huge question and I, I do not have the figures to hand but I do know that there are figures that that show that I, I, I think it's trans people are the most affected by um, issues like uh, body dysmorphia etc larger than any other group I think that's correct followed followed by gay men and then if you look at figures like um, mental health problems, depression, 
um, suicide rates, they, they, they correlate. And I know co correlation and causation are two, two very different things. But I think that, that those kind of figures that I do not have to hand, kind of speak, you have them, yeah. <laughs> I've got they, some they speak for themselves. Yeah, so right, listen to this. According to a survey conducted by mentalhealth.org.uk, lesbian, gay and bisexual people have higher levels of anxiety and depression around their body image than heterosexual people. That's 53% of them who felt anxious, 56% who felt depressed, compared to 33% of those who identified as heterosexual. And another recent study looking at the body image of non-binary and trans people found that harassment or rejection was associated with lower levels of body image, resulting in lower self-esteem and satisfaction with life. So it's like, if, if people think body image and having a nice body to flaunt on social media is a light and fluffy topic, but we're talking about our self sense of self-worth self-image who we are our identity it's a really heavyweight mm -hmm. issue isn't it alex no absolutely and this and the statistics speak for themselves that you know if a trans person does have lower self-esteem because of their body they are there is this correlation like you say with um you know being a victim of harassment and so yeah it's it's that safety thing again is that looking a certain way and having a certain body image is going to help or hinder you. Right, if we rewind for a minute and look at mainstream society, the difference between men and women, women were always brought up to believe that they were successful if they could attract a man and keep their man. And this is one of the things that led to the focus on the way they looked, the pressure to look a certain way. Wait, is that wrong? Is that not true? <laughs> Are you sure? Well, should I tell you something? Get this. So we had Juno Dawson on the show last week, who's a friend of mine and has mm. been for a long time. Since the time when she identified, presented as James, as a gay man. And the first time she went out as a trans woman, I was with her and I was staggered that everybody kept coming over to her and saying, oh, Juno, you look beautiful, you look beautiful. And she'd been perfectly beautiful as a gay man. Nobody had commented on it suddenly when she was a woman. And actually, I'm sure she'd be the first person to admit she's much more beautiful now. She was right at the beginning of her transition. But it was something people felt they had to say. With a woman, suddenly you have to comment on her appearance. Oh, God, yeah. What do you think about this, Alex? From yeah, your own experience? I, I experienced that so much. And it's like, I used to find, like, people, like waitresses, for example, would say, oh, I love your dress. And I felt my anxious brain was like, they're not saying they love my dress. They're saying, I can see that you're wearing a dress and that looks weird to me. And so I'm going to comment on it. And that is what I'm experiencing. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree. And yeah, I got that all the time. And it was like, what do I actually look like? I don't feel beautiful. But everyone's saying all the time, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. What does that mean? It becomes meaningless. But having experience of, of life as both, or presenting mm. outwardly as both genders, so you notice a big difference between the way that even though we're saying things are getting just as bad for men or getting worse for straight cis men, mm. you notice a difference between the way you were um, treated and perceived as a woman by society. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, from being, from presenting as a man to presenting as a woman and then at the very start of my transition to now, you know, I've really seen a big difference in the way being treated and and you know, it's definitely tied in with body image. All right, Callum, as a man, so you grew up later than me. I <laughs> um, 
I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and at that time, there was much less pressure on men to look a certain way. There absolutely was. Even the superheroes in Hollywood films did not have particularly good bodies by today's standards. Um, but I've noticed that the young straight men that I know, and never mind the gay ones, um, it's all about protein shakes, gym, gains. Um, yes, there's a lot of that to do with social media, but also maybe reality... TV series, we're going to be talking about one later, where the contestants are practically naked or they don't have any clothes on all the time and have amazing bodies. People, I can imagine people must feel like they're failures if they don't look a certain way, men. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I, I know that I've personally felt that way myself. And I never, I never want to be the person to say, look, we, we, we need to start feeling sorry for the for the straight cis white men in the world. Um, but at the same time, I do think they're often left out of the conversation. Obviously, they they bring immense privilege to the table in so many ways and facets of their life. But at the same time, they are as vulnerable to issues like body image as anyone else and I don't think we should be leaving them out of the conversation I do think it's important that we are still centering trans people gay men black women etc in these conversations because they're the people that this that this movement is supposed to represent and speak for but at the same time we, we need to be all-encompassing of everyone all right we're gonna have a break in a minute and have some music but Alex just before we do as a trans woman I would love to know has your have your feelings about your own body been influenced more by those outside the LGBTQ plus community or those within it? That's such an interesting question. I mean, I date straight men. And so yeah. I guess, you know, I'm getting that. I'm I'm being, you know, oh, I can't think of it. I'm attracting straight men. So that, is, yes, people outside of the LGBT community are giving me validation um and but yeah i mean god i, I don't know what about I the opposite of validation oh i don't mm, i don't really get that i'm quite lucky i don't oh, really, yeah yeah no i oh, don't really fantastic. get that yeah no i'm not like you know not i'm hit on in the street i was catfish uh, not catfish my what's god. catfish i was cat called on the way here <laughs> i'm wearing actually uh, my dress has got a ridiculously high slit in right now so i don't know if you can see under this table um but yeah so i got cat called on the way here so that's kind of tells you but yeah i mean i love it I, do, I don't know any straight men in real life so like <laughs> do you think you love it because that's validating you as a woman yeah having grown up you know, presenting as a boy, or is do you think if you were a cis woman, you'd also love the um, the validation of your body? Um, it's I, difficult to it's, say. It's, it's it's obviously difficult to say. I think I yeah, I love the compliments about my um, body now. Yeah, because I haven't had that and I haven't had that self confidence. And I just want to say, I just want to caveat: I don't love being catcalled, <laughs> but it did happen. <laughs> We are talking about body image and whether the issues around the way we feel about our bodies are more pronounced within the LGBTQ plus community. I've got some listener comments to read out. Liam on Instagram says, one word, yes, they are. Suzanne says, definitely. Juan on Twitter, referring to gay male culture specifically, says, is it any different than when women, than what women have had to go through for decades? The illusion of perfect always just out of reach. Mark on Instagram says, yes. 
they are more pronounced in our community. As someone who is overweight and has moobs and has suffered with eating disorders, I feel everything has been ramped up as of late. I also feel everything more or less to do with our community has been overtly sexualized. I want to talk to you about that, Callum, actually. Mm. I'm no prude and I know it's sometimes freedom of expression, but it's been crazy and has set me off quite a few times with my body issues. We are who we are and we shouldn't be expected to look a certain way to be accepted or be put down because of it. Okay, so Callum, the world of gay male social media, Instagram in particular, is one that sends out a message that gay men have to have good bodies. Um, That's who we are. I've noticed lots of completely inappropriate body flaunting on social media. But actually, when I say inappropriate, that makes me sound really judgy. Um, But what I mean is somebody's showing off a piece of furniture they've bought or a meal they've made or a book they've read and they're basically wearing underpants and tensing their abs. And um, so what's your... So obviously, you're very conscious of this kind of thing and, you know, you you explore these issues in your work. So in all of your work across social media, YouTube. So what is your policy for how you present your own body to not you know, draw other people who follow you in down to, into that downward spiral. It's a really like strangely complicated issue. Um, and I, for a long time, I felt that people, I, I genuinely felt that people online would not respect me if I didn't look a certain way. And they wouldn't think you had a brain or anything to say. No, no, I'm, I mean genuinely that people were more likely to listen to you if you looked a certain way. So, I, right. so you know, so I, I felt really pressured and pushed into striving to make myself look a little bit more um, what, what, what is deemed acceptable or um, desired after. Um, and, and so I kind of fell into this trap of, you know, OK, maybe I'll, maybe I'll take my top off in this picture. Maybe I will show a bit more skin. Maybe I'll post more pictures in my Speedo. And then and then more people come to the conversation. But then you, 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 you end up in this difficult place where it's like, I love using my social media presence to talk about issues that I really care about. Yeah. Um, and, it, and I feel like I'm often in this place where it's like, if I'm not in my Speedo, if I don't have my top, top off, people no longer wish to listen to me so i so i end up in this kind of like catch 22 downward spiral where it's like okay i have to take my clothes off at all times if i want to get people's attention and the second i stop doing that then people stop listening well, so so what do you do yeah and also it's a balancing act isn't it and um if you ever you you know with any balancing act you won't always be right on target sometimes you'll stray off target and everybody will have a go at you when you do i'm Absolutely. sure there there have been cases of of people you know um wanting to talk about an, an issue that they're really passionate about and so they so they use their kind of thirst trap picture to get people to pay attention but then then you tread a line of that becoming inappropriate i mean yeah. that th- there yeah. was a, a a gay instagrammer who was quite heavily cancelled online because he was talking about the black lives matter movement but he was using his kind of thirst trap picture to get attention and like i i i, I kind of feel for him because i see what he was trying to do but he really missed the mark and it came off as completely offensive and inappropriate but i mean at the same time it's a difficult mark to hit at every time right i want to read something to you and i'd love your opinion but i'd also like alex's opinion alan downs who wrote the book the velvet rage he talks about how so many of us are brought up, he talks about gay men in sp- specifically, how so many of us are brought up to think we're not good enough, that deep down there's something wrong with us, we're dirty. So we try to dress up the exterior we've got to impress or please people and make them love us. Um, and this is the reason that maybe we have more of an eye on fashion than the average straight man, as well as 
trying to make her bodies as nice to look at as possible. Um, so first of all, as a gay man, Callum, what do you think of that? Is there anything in that argument? Ah. Uh. I'm not sure I understand the question. Can you re can you rephrase the question? Well, do you think, you know, it's about gay shame, internalised homophobia. Can yeah. this lead us to try and um, impress people by prettying up the exterior because we think yeah. inside we're a bit rotten and wrong? I, th I, th I think that's the thing that runs through all of us, all LGBT plus people. And it's that we do have this kind of like we absolutely must prove ourselves to be the absolute best at everything to prove that there isn't something wrong with us because when you grow up being told that there's something wrong with you you then strive to do better and I think this is why we end up with so many LGBT plus people like working in the arts and creating beautiful yeah. things and it's yeah. it's this it's this strive to do better than that's your exactly, heterosexual cisgender counterparts that's exactly what he says so Alex forgetting about your upbringing as a gay as a boy tell us about as a trans woman does that chime with you the idea that you've been taught there's something wrong with you inside and then you therefore try and make yourself try and prove people wrong by showing them how nice you are and prettying up the exterior yeah totally i mean you know historically lgbt people have always wanted to be accepted by straight society you know and and so there are, we've found ways of doing that we've been working in cabarets since you know forever and and things like that and yeah it's been the same for the trans community they were drag queens in the 1970s in new york who you know now we would deem them as probably trans women um and yeah, I definitely feel that I want to be also accepted by straight cis society. Um, and so to do that, I want to look as good as possible. Definitely, I f certainly feel the pressure of, of that. All right, trying to um, just flip it a bit. Is there a positive side to um, body, all this kind of pressure on our bodies? You know, I wonder if we're being a bit too negative. So first of all, from an anthropological, evolutionary point of view, is it just about, is it perfectly natural to want a good body to attract people of the desired sex or gender as a mate? You know, competition to find the best mates. Also, um, the pressure to have a good body can motivate people to lead much healthier lives. I've noticed that young people now drink and smoke less. When I was at university, everybody smoked fags. You know, I've been in the bar in my old university. No, We were drunk on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night. Nobody is now. They think about how much they're drinking. They think about, they don't think about, they, they try not to smoke. You know, is, um, is there a positive side to this pressure on our bodies, Callum? I do. I think the problem with that, I mean, I, I see what you're saying, but I think the problem with that is the assumption that somebody with a great body is also healthy. People always assume I live the healthiest lifestyle ever. I absolutely do not. I order many a takeaway. I drink more than I should. I do a lot of things that are not remotely healthy whatsoever. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I, and, and sometimes I think trying to achieve these kind of body types can actually lead you down very unhealthy pathways, um, I, I, you know, even eating disorders, etc. Et so just because somebody looks a certain way, it doesn't necessarily mean they are healthy. Absolutely. Can you, right, we need to wrap up in a few minutes. Can you um, give our listeners any tips based on your own experience of how to have a better, more healthy relationship with their own body? A big one for me is always, always, always do not like try and take away any shame of away from food. Like there's no good foods and bad foods. Fuel is if food is something we use to fuel our bodies. And the second you start seeing it that way, rather than seeing food as the enemy, you know, I'm I, I'm I'm going to eat this giant pizza, but that's going to be the fuel for my workout tomorrow. And I think 
that kind of change in mindset is, some, is something that's really, really worked for me. Alex, so um, thinking about how we can move towards a more healthy relationship with our bodies, as a, tra- as a representative on the panel for the trans community <laughs> yes. today, do we need to move away from the idea that a trans person's validity depends on how convincing, in inverted commas, their body is, how well it passes for the body of a cis person? Oh God, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the destruction of the gender binary, you know, men look a certain way, women look a certain way. That can only help everyone and definitely including trans, gender diverse and non-binary people. You know, people look all sorts of different ways. There are cis women that look all sorts of different ways, but trans women are expected to look a certain very feminine way. And yet ending that and accepting that there are all types of trans women, there are all types of trans men, cis men, blah, blah, blah. Everyone, that can only be a good thing. And actually, to try, I always try and be positive at the end of a discussion. One of the things I love most about queer culture is that we are allowed to break the rules of mainstream society. We can book expectations. We can refuse to conform. Even after what you've said about trans women, there is still the expectation that we're going to be different. That's what queer means. And, um, and our culture as it exists today for our community is newer and straight culture and I think there's opportunities there to um, make it better you know we can decide what we don't want we can take control and change our culture you're both nodding do you feel hopeful about the future Alex first absolutely we've always been ahead of the curve we've always been the tastemakers the progressive people that will only continue it's continuing now Um, and yeah I think the future is bright what do you think, Callum? Do you agree? Ab- absolutely, a thousand percent, yes. And one of my favourite examples of this is that like, I worked with a load of male personal trainers, hated working with them because they didn't understand the body that I wanted to achieve, started working with female personal trainers and suddenly they understood like my goals. And I feel like that's something that only an LGBT plus person would do, say, no, I don't want the man. I'm going with the woman because they understand my needs better. And we understand the importance of stepping out of our lane. Absolutely. I am Matt Cain, this is my Sunday Roast, and I am talking to my brilliant panellist and guest, Callum McSwiggan. Callum, tell us, you've been a YouTuber now since 2013. What made you, of all the channels out there, the content platforms, what made you go for YouTube? I think just the, the, the opportunity to like hop on a little soapbox and, and talk to a camera and talk about whatever issue that that was in my mind at the moment and have people from all over the world come and listen was always the draw for me. Was that also because you hadn't been listened to previously? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. People always assume that like my online career started when I when I started YouTube back in back in 2013. Um, but no, I, I had been writing a written blog online since like 2007 and nobody cares. <laughs> oh, can I just say when I asked that question, I was thinking more about growing up as the kind of neglected, overlooked gay child. Right. <laughs> Not, I wasn't trying to... <laughs> but do you know what I mean? A lot of us, it goes back to what you were saying about the Alan Downs book. Lots yeah. of us have a drive that comes from feeling we're not good enough. Yeah, but I think as well for me um, that it it wasn't necessarily about, you know, trying to get attention and eyes on me. Obviously, that was a small part of it. Um, You know, I'm a narcissist like like everybody else. Um, You're a human being. I'm a human being like everybody else. 
but no, I, I, I genuinely had all these topics and things that I cared about and I, I didn't know how to share that with the world. And I'd, I'd write it on my written blog and, and th three entire people would read it. And that was my mother and my father and, and, <laughs> and myself. <laughs> so, you know, I think finding YouTube and suddenly there was this massive audience and pe people hungry for it, especially young LGBT plus people hungry for it who would come in their droves to to listen to what I had to say. And I'm, you know, I'm just little old me. So that 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 felt great and very encouraging so it it kind of kind of took off from there although not very old at all little old me <laughs> at the time and in terms of the topics that you covered um where did your sexuality figure in the mix right at the beginning did you always know you wanted that to be part of your truth that you were putting out there I, 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 in the beginning, I actually battled with this quite a lot because I didn't just want to be, you know, your gay guy on YouTube. There weren't many people in the UK making LGBT plus content then. And I didn't want to be defined by that at first, which is so different to how I am now. I'm like LGBT everything. Stick a rainbow flag on it. Tell but me about <laughs> it. But, uh, you know, we were all we were, that was something we were told as a general piece of advice all the time. Journalists, writers, broadcasters. Don't be pigeonholed as too exactly. gay because it would hold us back. Exactly. So I, I was I was trying to throw out a wide net and talk about all different kinds of issues and things. But then I realized it was when I talked about being gay, being part of the LGBT plus community. That, that's when people cared and that's when people showed up to listen. And again, that was that was the encouraging thing that made me go, no, actually, I do care about this. And this is what I want to talk about. And it's a huge part of who I am. So I'm, I'm going to lean into it. And that's the best thing I ever did. And do you think the people who cared, do you think that was also people from outside our community who just respected the fact you were being true to yourself and being authentic? Yeah, because I think that's something that's relatable to, to anyone, no matter who you are, you know, t telling your truth in a way that's authentic is, is something that anybody can relate to. And yeah, absolutely. It's not just LGBT plus people. It's, it's people from all walks of life. And lots of the content that you post is to do with travel. Um, that has been for a while. Yeah. What is it about traveling that excites you so much? I, again, very big question there, Matt. Um, I, I, I went traveling a lot in my early 20s. I lived, I lived abroad for many years, um, living in many different countries, working in many different countries. And that was when I really kind of fell in love with the LGBT plus community. It was seeing people from different cultures and different communities around the world that really made me realize how vast and diverse our, our community is. And I mean, I would go to countries where it was illegal to be LGBT plus. And I was like, I'm not I'm not going to meet any LGBT plus people here. It's illegal. And I, I, no, I was, I, was, I was wrong. There's, there's, there's LGBT plus people everywhere. Um, and that, that community is anywhere in the world, no matter what society or the, or the law says, that community is always there. Now, actually, sticking on the subject of travel, I mentioned when I introduced you early in the, in the show, your brilliant travel memoir, Eat Gay Love. I described it, apparently I've been, I've been reminded by my producers, as <laughs> sweet and fun with real emotional depth and a rousing feisty spirit. It is brilliant. And I loved the way that it combines the story of your travels mm -hmm. with your evolution as a gay man. So what was it that made you want to examine these two themes in parallel or did they just happen as you experienced them in parallel? Yeah, and that, that is exactly it. It's not like I've, I've sat down and gone, how am I going to craft and intertwine these two things? That's, it's genuinely my lived experience. I was living in the UK in a, in a small town. I didn't know many LGBT plus people. I felt very isolated from my community. 
I, I didn't really understand what it truly meant to be part of this community of what it truly meant to be a gay man. And it was the second I left this country and started traveling and meeting people all over the world that I really began to realize. So then when I finally moved back here, I, I came as a completely different person to the person I was when I left. So, yeah, that's not something that's been cleverly fabricated. That is genuinely how it happened. Brilliant, brilliant. And... Um, if you could pick um, all the places you've visited in your life, even since um, the ones documented in the memoir, do you have a favourite? If there were no COVID restrictions anywhere in the world, <laughs> what's the first place you'd jump on a plane to? Oh, gosh, oh, difficult. I, I feel like my answer would change depending on which day you asked me. Yeah, but right now, I'm, I'm going to say the Netherlands, Amsterdam particularly. And uh, I've been to prides all over the world. But Amsterdam Pride, I don't know if either of you have, have been. I've but not. it is incredibly special. I mean, the, the parade itself is on the water. They throw big parties on boats. And what's it, what's it called when you have loads of boats together? A flotilla? Is that what it is? An armada. An armada, sure. <laughs> why <don't> not? <laughs> a, a queer armada. Yeah. Um, it is just the community there, the acceptance there, the people there, everything. I just, I love Amsterdam. And what about countries where we aren't accepted or just, or we're, we're actually um, criminalized? As you mentioned before, you've been to some of them. Yeah. In one of our previous episodes of this show, we talked about the moral dilemma yeah. a lot of queer people face. You know, if tourists are accepted, but local queer people are criminalized and prosecuted, should we go? If tour if tourism companies are um, trying to attract our dollar, what's your policy on this? It is, it's a huge ethical dilemma. And I try to avoid going to countries where LG LGBT plus people are criminalized because I don't want my tourism money going to to fund those regimes but then at the same time i feel for the lgbt plus people living there on the ground who you know have their own stories to tell and and and, and maybe maybe run their own businesses you know who could who could benefit so it's it's a tricky one i do try to avoid them but it's it's it's, 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 it's hard yeah it's really hard because also there's the thing that um by going and being visibly queer um can that help change attitudes on the ground but then you think Look, we're all activists every day of our lives. Do we necessarily want to be on a holiday? I know, I know. It, it, it's it's tricky, and I, I think Thailand is is a is a great example of this because you know we we often talk about um, trans people in particular for going from all over the world to the gender clinics in Thailand, but but trans people in Thailand aren't actually treated that well. So we kind of have this this weird dichotomy where where trans people from foreign countries are treated well, but trans people actually living there aren't necessarily. It's so hard, isn't it, yeah. when you want to do the right thing by it. But um, but also, I mean, if we if we rule out going to pe to places where acceptance isn't very high, or you know, there's particularly where they're criminalised trans identities, then there's not going to be many places left in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, right, that's negative. <laughs> Tell me about last week we were talking about um, social media and whether it's been a force for division or positivity within the um, LGBTQ plus community. It's been a powerful tool for you to spread, um, to increase awareness, you know, spread um, positivity. Would you say it, on balance, it's been better or worse? Oh, oh I, I have a lot of feelings about this one. So um, did Riyadh, <laughs> Calaf, who came on last week. I have a lot of feelings about this one. I mean, I, I, 
I think there's a lot of infighting within our community and I, I would like to see it stop. And I'm not saying that people should get a free pass to do or say whatever they want. Of course they shouldn't. And if people are saying or doing problematic things, they absolutely should be held accountable. But there's a way to do that. And I think we're often at each other's throats and, and, and looking, searching for a moment to for somebody to slip up so we can jump on them. And I, I, it's like... It's like cancelling for sports. I think people yeah. really, really take pleasure in tearing people down. And my, my policy is if you're taking pleasure out of tearing somebody down, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. It shouldn't be a pleasurable experience for you to say, I'm going to hold you accountable because what you've done is harmful. I tell you what, Callum, that, that theme, that topic of infighting within the community comes up every single show we do and i'm sure it'll yeah and i'm sure it'll come up later in this one <laughs> next with certain elements of queer culture being adopted by other communities how much of this is cultural appropriation and when should we call it out our brilliant panel are going to be sticking around to discuss this we'll also be joined by tiktok star benji Cousy and britain's first out muslim drag queen asifa lahore I am Matt Kane, and you're listening to Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. My brilliant panel, Callum McSwiggan and Alex Woolhouse, are still here. And we're going to be talking now about cultural appropriation. So, from Madonna voguing, to hen parties going out on the gay scene, to young straight girls using words like slay and shade, for a long time now, mainstream society has wanted to celebrate certain elements of queer culture. But at what point does this celebration tip over into cultural appropriation? And when and why do we need to guard against it? I am delighted that we're now joined by Benji Cousy. He's a TikTok content creator and inclusivity educator with over 3.4 million likes and just shy of 180,000 followers. That's 10,000 more than the last time he was on this show. <laughs> he's always brilliant, so I'm sure he's about to get a whole load more followers after this. Benji, welcome back. Can you start by telling us how do you define cultural appropriation? Let's start right at the beginning. Let's get the definition straight. Let's do it because words mean things. So thank you for having me back on. Happy to be here. My pleasure. Um, so cultural appropriation in really simple paired back terms is when you adopt and exploit aspects of another culture, essentially. And it's usually performed by a privileged group against a marginalized group. Interesting. Right. That was a very that was a very good, um, concise summary. So I was going to say, why is it a problem? Shouldn't we be mm -hmm. flattered as a community if others want to imitate us? Isn't what's that saying? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Oh, right. But actually, maybe the clue to your answer is in the word exploit. It is exactly because cultural appreciation is a thing. And that's when you show respectful interest in the culture with permission and when you give full credit, ensuring that you don't benefit. And that's what people think cultural appropriation is, and it's not. So a great example is that if you were to go to a cultural, so I'm from Ghana, if you were to go to a cultural Ghanaian wedding, you'd be expected to wear our cultural garments, right? And that's cultural appreciation, because you've, you've had the permission from the culture to yes. um, wear the garments. But if you were to then take the same garments and wear them to the club as like a party outfit, that's appropriation. You are exploiting my culture for your benefit. 
Oh, fantastic. I love that example. Right. At this point, I want to bring in our second new voice, which is Asifa Lahore. If you don't know Asifa, she's Britain's first out and proud Muslim drag queen. She featured in a Channel 4 documentary in 2015 and in the same year received an Attitude Pride Award. She's an impassioned activist fighting for race, gender and religious rights and somehow she finds the time to continue promoting and DJing at some of London's top Gaijin club nights. Asifa, welcome. Hey, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you, and I'm very excited to have you on. I would love to know, as a drag queen and now a proud trans woman, have you ever been the victim of cultural appropriation? Oh my God, all the time. Um, so, I mean, when I first started uh, performing in drag, for example, um, I used to wear uh, the burqa. Um, and and I still wear the burqa now, don't get me wrong, as part of my drag act. But when I first started using it, I was questioned as to why, um, why um, I felt a need to use it into my drag act. Um, and I was very much like, well, why not? I mean, I, I come from a Muslim background. I'm actually not only performing a parody about it, but I'm also using the the opportunity to express a part of, of both my culture, identity, race and, and religion. Uh, but it was questioned. It was questioned by the community who weren't, um, you know, majority Muslim, who didn't understand the reasons behind why I was using it. You know, um, I grew up, for example, watching many drag acts do parodies of of sister act, of nuns' outfits, of of you name it. And even though the burqa is isn't directly linked to religion, it's a cultural. Um, uh garment rather than a religious garment i would even argue and say that actually a nun's um uh outfit is is specifically a, a religious outfit i was questioned about that so that oh, was my first sort of foray into into um cultural appreciation if you like appreciation appropriation benji talked about where he draws the line do you think it becomes offensive when it's a powerful group that's trivializing the work of an oppressed minority and it's not giving anything back oh my god what a question i mean look for example if i were to pinpoint drag culture as part of our community you know words like busted like slay like shantae you know people would say oh you know we should be celebrating them it's part of our community it's part of our culture but actually words and uh, the actual culture, the actual drag culture is actually taken from ballroom culture um, uh, and American black culture. Um, so it's, it's, very, it's a very interesting question because I am very much um, of the ilk that, yes, it, you know, I use these words, use these terminologies, but at the same time, understand where they come from, understand yes. the history behind them and understand... Um, the oppression that other people, other communities faced um, in order for me uh, to use them now or for in order to us to use them now. 
Brilliant. Right, and I must point out that Benji was nodding as you were speaking then, but what I want to do now is bring in my panellists. So, Asifa mentioned the, the Black and Latinx ball culture of New York in the 80s and 90s. This was um, opened up by the documentary Paris is Burning and then brought to the mainstream. First the Malcolm McLaren song, then Madonna's Vogue took it to a whole new level. Um... What do you think about when things are acceptable levels of cult cultural appropriation when it comes to this? Because first of all, I must so people who weren't there at the time may say Madonna was guilty of cultural appropriation then. Um, and I'm not just saying this because I am a massive Madonna fan and have obviously even written a whole book about it. But giving some historical context, no one was interested in that culture at the time. It mm. was completely invisible. People were oppressing it, trying to pretend it didn't exist. And she, you know, she brought those dancers out of that scene and took them on tour with her, had her in her videos, wrote songs for them. So in some ways, can cultural appropriation be the first step, Callum, towards bringing, to building a greater visibility for a minority community? Is it always, when you see it in historical context, is it always bad? I, th I think Asifa touched on it perfectly there in saying that I think it, it depends on the context and we absolutely must have an understanding of the culture and where it's come from. I think what we see time and time again is people using words like Shantae etc and saying oh you know that's from that's from Drag Race that's from RuPaul's Drag Race it's like no that's that's a reality television program that you that you've watched and you haven't taken the time to actually understand where these words and things are coming yes. from. I think one prime example um, that I've, I've heard people from ballroom culture mentioned time and time again is the death drop um and that we should we shouldn't be calling it a death drop we should be calling it a dip because it, it's taken from that culture but we've kind of rebranded it in this very artificial drag race reality t television program way um and you know pe 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 people from those commu communities as far as i understand are saying that, that that's actually not correct and we'd rather use the right word but but we're not always listening. Absolutely. I should point out at this point for any of our listeners who don't know, but RuPaul's Drag Race is the latest step on that journey. It's the same thing, um, the Harlem Bowl culture, going to Paris is Burning, then the Madonna song, and now it's inspired the format of RuPaul's Drag Race. Alex, when you hear cis straight people watching RuPaul's Drag Race and adopting some of the language, as Callum just said, whether it's slay or throwing shade, do you find that offensive? I mean, personally, no, but then I'm not a black um, trans performer from the ball culture. And I, you know, have definitely been um, guilty of using that terminology. I think when I was at university, I was the LGBT rep and I made a sign for pride that said, yes, slay queen, because that was all the rage at the time. It was like 2016 and everyone was saying that. But you're within our community, so... You know, but it still wasn't my phrase to use because I'm not. I wasn't a well. I'm from still that not sub community. Yeah, I'm right, not from that right. sub community. But I was, you know, I was RuPauling it almost. I was, you know, uh, commercialising it. I was using it for a prop for my university pride parade, and that wasn't really appropriate. Um, and I can definitely see that now. Okay, Asifa, you are a drag queen. So tell us, if we think about Michelle Visage as an example, she's a cis straight woman who's worked many elements of drag culture into her own identity and persona. She's made a whole career out of drag culture. Is she guilty of cultural appropriation or is it okay in her case because she gives so much back and always acknowledges the realities of our lives as queer people? 
So obviously I don't personally know Michelle Versailles, so I can't really comment on her specifically like as a personal being. But from what I understand and have seen of her, um, you know, she um, as a New Jersey woman, girl, um, someone who's been on the scene for a number of years, someone who's um, supported, you know, RuPaul, um, uh, you know, been part of that scene as well. Possibly. I mean, I do I do think that, you know, um, as a RuPaul's Drag Race judge, she definitely has, you know, has the right to comment on, um, or, uh, you know, on, on the competition and, and use certain words. Um, many other people would argue and say, look, I don't think that she... Um, you know, she, for example, she calls herself, uh, she used to call herself um, a queer person or, or a gay man, essentially. Um, and many people would argue, well, you know, that's not right because you have, you know, essentially just been the best friend of, of somebody who's, um, who's fronting this uh, reality TV show. Um, so, I mean, that, it's, it's a mixed bag when it comes to Michelle Visage, if I'm honest with you. Okay, fantastic. I want to go to Benji now. I would love if you could, if we're speaking about cultural appropriation in general, can you compare and contrast the experience of our queer community um, mm. with the way some elements of black culture have been appropriated by the white mainstream? The whole phenomenon of, I remember the whole phenomenon of black cool. When I was growing up back in the 80s, it was famously satirised by Ali G in the late 90s and early 90s, white people who just want to be more black, to be cool. Are there any parallels here with what's going on now with um, our community's culture being plundered by people from outside it? Yes, 100%. There are direct parallels. Um, we need to really think about the impact we're having on the marginalized community in question when we're talking about these issues. So, you know, in terms of um, queer culture, if, you know, if you, if I, if a sh straight cis person was to walk around saying, yes, lay queen, um, you know, it's, it's, it's cool. It's kind of fun. It's like, yes. Right. But if you are say someone who's part of the community, if you're, if you're someone who's quite visibly queer and you say those same things, you're more likely to prompt discrimination and harassment in public. Right. Yes. Similarly with, um, think about black hairstyles. So if you as a white individual are to wear braids and go out in public, it's a fashion choice. It's exciting. Mm. It's interesting. What have you done with your hair? That's really cool. A black, if a black woman wears a hairstyle that's from her culture and that is braids, right. And goes into work, it's unprofessional. It's not conducive for the office. They could actually not get a job because of she's being, hairstyle. she's being political. A hundred percent. So we need to really be thinking about outside of ourselves and about the impact our choices are having on others. Okay. How about, um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, I was being provocative on purpose saying that, you know, mm. imita um, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Um, what, why do we need to worry about cultural appropriation? Why is it so serious? What are the possible negative consequences? Yes, it can be a sign of disrespect, but is it mm. about... Um, when outside forces hijack certain elements of our culture, is there a danger that they'll be watered down or diluted? What do you think are the dangers of cultural appropriation? So, I mean, I'm not necessarily sure about the, you know, cultures being watered down or diluted because they will always be inherent, you know, with the culture they're from and that significance will always hold. But what it will just mean is that discrimination against those communities for doing those same things will still persist. 
right? Because ultimately, you know, it will not be assimilated for everyone to enjoy it. It would just mean the most privileged in society can still enjoy doing those things while the marginalized people in the community are still oppressed and discriminated against for doing those things. So that's really the danger. Right, absolutely. Right, we've got a few minutes before we have to have a break. I want to ask our panellists, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of incidences of cultural appropriation, how you feel about them. So... You're testing us now. I'm I know. testing oh you. Oh my gosh. So, <laughs> so let's start with Alex. In 2017, a major fashion retailer prompted a backlash when it began selling T-shirts emblazoned with the word femme leading to accusations of appropriating lesbian culture. Was this an overreaction, do you think? No, I think let's listen to the lesbians. And yeah, if that's if they think that it was uh, inappropriate, then that's inappropriate. Oh, great. Very short, succinct answer. <laughs> Callum, Callum, what about when major corporations add a rainbow flag to their logo during Pride Month? Is that cultural appropriation or just trying to virtue signal, sometimes without any basis of support for our community? Although actually, in which case, isn't it linked to cultural appropriation? It depends on the intention and also what that organisation is doing to back up that rainbow flag. So if you're just sticking a rainbow flag on your logo because you think, oh, look how great we are. Look, you know, we're supporting we're supporting the queer people. Um, then then no, that, that, then that is cultural appropriation. You shouldn't be using our flag. If you are using it for the right reasons because you want to support our community and you're willing to back that up by, you know, charitable donations or, or doing things to actually support the community, then yes, absolutely, please do use the flag. What I want to say now is I want to bring in some listener comments and talking about cultural appropriation. I um, illustrated my question on social media with a picture of Madonna and Britney enjoying a lesbian kiss at the MTV Music Awards in 2003. I put underneath, um, you know, when is it cultural appropriation? When is this a problem? Um, some comments from um, listeners. Campbell X on Instagram. Two white, feminine presented, assumed straight, pretty women snogging for PR is not revolutionary. The cishet male gaze, which we are all complicit in, renders this kind of behaviour harmless at least or titillating at most. The male equivalent is usually played for laughs because it's more uncomfortable, again, to the dominant cishet male gaze. Either way, it sucks for actual queer people. But when there is no visibility, we clutch at straws. We just need to see more of us showing our queer authentic love. Paul on Facebook says, I actually thought this performance was extremely progressive. Madonna has said before she slept with women. You know better than I do how much she stuck up for LGBTQ plus rights. She used it to become controversial and to shock as that's what she does best. To challenge people by pushing their buttons. And we must say that in 2003 there was no chance of MTV having actual lesbians on um, the awards show. There was no chance there'd actually be any lesbians having a successful music career at the time. Um, so he's saying Madonna was one of the best allies there is and I think this was an act of defiance. She was trying to normalise it at the same time. Finally, from Rebecca Chance on Instagram, she says... I've been told by three prominent gay activists that I could identify as queer. Since I'm 100% straight, that makes the world the word pretty meaningless, in my opinion. Now, somebody touched on this earlier. Asifa, how do we feel about straight cis people saying they feel like outsiders or feel an affinity with our community and therefore identify as queer? Is this the ultimate act of cultural appropriation? 
Wow. Again, I, I will bring context into this because, you know, where is the line between feeling like you're part of a community and feeling like you're an ally? And again, it depends on um, context. So, for example, it's interesting. OK, so I'm going to be very specific here. Uh, when everything opened up and I went out clubbing, I went out clubbing in South London to um, uh, a gay venue. And um, obviously I identify as a uh, trans woman in my day-to-day -day life. Um, and for anyone listening, yes, I do have boobs. I have my own homegrown boobs. And I was surrounded by lots of other gay men and uh, they were topless and they were feeling their fantasy. And so I decided, you know what? I'm also going to go topless. And um, it's interesting. Obviously, I'm part of the community. But again, I was questioned about that as to why, you know, everyone assumed that I was a, a straight heterosexual cis woman. And that because of the atmosphere, I, you know, felt galvanized to, to bring out my boobs and go topless. So... I would say, again, it depends entirely on the context. I have where, to say... Where is allyship and where is... Yes. Um, you know, where is this identity of feeling queer? I have to say, I'd love and to have expression. been there to... I'd love to have been there to experience that context and to see you in action <laughs> on the dance floor. All right, I want to ask Alex, so how do you feel about straight cis people appropriating the word queer because they feel like a bit of an outsider? Do you think that's the ultimate act of cultural appropriation or are there certain contexts, as Asifa said, where it can be fine? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think that being queer is... A culture. I think queer culture and being queer is sli are slightly different things. Well, no, they're completely different yes. things, actually. And if a person is identifying as queer, um, then who are sort of we to say, no, you not, you know, you're not. You only like, you know, X, Y, Z. You know, if they are saying I'm queer because I enjoy queer culture, that's simply incorrect. It's just a wrong, incorrect use of the word. Um, but yeah, it doesn't bother me particularly. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm queer. I think I'm a very um, het heteronormative straight woman. Um, and so I don't even really think of myself as queer because I think queerness is inherently more linked to sexuality than gender. All right. That's a whole other conversation about yeah, queer. I'm not even absolutely. sure I should have brought that one up. Right, Callum. So I want to put something to you. Isn't all cultural appropriation to where anywhere don't we as lgbtq plus people adopt elements of straight culture gay men often imitate really laddie straight boy mannerisms and looks to turn on other gay men or does that not count it, as straight culture is a majority culture and hasn't been oppressed yeah i think it's what benji when benji was introducing the topic of cultural appropriation i think he said it perfectly and that is that you know, it's the oppressor versus the oppressed. So I think if, if as LGBT plus people, we we want to lift from straight culture, if, it, if that is indeed a thing, then then, yeah, I think that's absolutely fine, because in, in this context, we would be the oppressed and not the oppressor. Um, all right, Benji, say something else. Callum said you, you expressed that perfectly. Express something else perfectly for <laughs> us. Haven't white gay men adopted elements of black female culture? Yes, 100%, definitely. Um, and, you know, a big part of that is, you know, the, the sassy black female 
element to it where a lot of white gay men feel like they have a right to um, act like black women or ca a caricature of a black woman because they feel like they're 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 queer so it's fine and it's really not because again it goes back to the fact that ultimately your sassy mannerisms are fine because they're coming from you in your kind of white male body right but when they are used by black women themselves they're discriminated against for those same mannerisms and so, it perpetuates, yeah, that. perpetuates stereotypes. stereotypes that people exactly. will then hold against them. A hundred percent. All right. So, Asifa, there's, as Alex pointed out, there's a difference between culture and sexuality. So how do you feel about straight girls going a bit lesbian to turn on their men? Is this, you know, is this when it gets offensive? Straight girls, you know, being a bit lesbian on the dance floor... Um, with their girlfriends, you know, there's the you know we mentioned the Madonna Britney thing, which is a long time ago, but there's also the Katy Perry song, "I Kissed a Girl." She's commented several years later that if she were writing the song now, she would come up with different lyrics. Um, how do you feel, Asifa, about straight girls going a bit lesbian to try and be a bit edgy and sexy? Again, I I would find that personally very offensive. I mean, just the term going a bit lesbian. It, it's it, it's so offensive. I know, I know. Um, That's why I was saying it on purpose. Know. Can I just point her? <laughs> oh, totally. Um, it's I, I personally find it offensive. And um, I think it's offensive for our entire community. I mean, again, you could, when you give me those examples of um, Britney, Madonna and Christina Aguilera, it's interesting because I, I was literally a teenager at the time when that was happening. And for me, that was like one of the first points of references um, in, in Western media regarding, you know, um, lesbianism. Or if we go back to 2002 and we think of tattooed to yes. Russian ladies pretending to be lesbian. Again, that was such a phenomenal movement at the time. I, I remember like, you know, that being a big thing. But obviously, if we look back on it with 2020 and 2021 eyes, obviously people will look back and go, oh my gosh, that was so bad. Um, but at the so, time, it was the only visibility a lot of lesbians had. Exactly, exactly. And, um, you know, I, I remember this whole furore when they represented Russia in Eurovision 2003 and whether they'd be allowed to kiss or not and the camera cutting away from them. It was a big deal back then. Yeah. Um, and so where do you draw the line? Where do I you... I know, I know. It's difficult. Know. At least it started a conversation. All right, I want to put something else to Callum. Um, so we've talked about straight girls going a bit lesbian in inverted commas. What about straight girls and hen parties going to gay bars to ogle the strippers and to experience our gay male scene and kind of, you know, and um, just to say that they love it. Is that a form of cultural appropriation? I, I think I keep repeating the same thing. But I, again, I think it's about intention. What I don't want to, I don't want to underestimate the fact that sometimes groups of women may go to LGBT plus venues to feel safer. Um, yeah. I understand that that's absolutely a thing. And as allies um, to their gay male friends. And as allies to their friends, et cetera, as well. Um, so again, I think it is about intention. I, I, I don't I don't want to be the gatekeeper of LGBT plus venues and say who can and can't come in. However, if you're coming in to kind of disrespect our, our spaces our, our culture um, and make a joke of it and make light of it which I've seen time and time again then 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 please go somewhere else because th th this isn't for you 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, Benji, do you think by, obviously it does depend on intention, but by keeping groups of straight women out of our scene on principle, um, are we just encouraging separation and division? And are they the last things we should be encouraging? Or is there something we genuinely need to guard against going on here? Well, there's a practical um, problem here because ultimately how can you tell if uh, uh, just from looking at a woman that, you know, she's straight or not or how she identifies in any aspect, right? Well, how about so. if how about if they're there as a hen party with a veil on and learn a place? And... <laughs> and you can make an assumption, yes. But I thought I'd get that out of the way. Um, but I would say that ultimately, you know, safe spaces are very, very important for marginalised people. And if you're not, if you're part of a dominant group, that means the world is your safe space. You don't need to come into the safe space of marginalised people where they're, they're not allowed to roam in, in the general society that we live in and that's where we kind of share you know our common culture our common issues our common problems um and where we kind of have solidarity and, and we need that as oppressed people and if you're part of a dominant group you should be aware of that and respect that all right so um we've talked about the scene but looking at the general issue again alex do you think are we sometimes being a bit po-faced here you know we were oppressed persecuted for years if straight cis people want to engage with our community and enjoy it even if their intentions aren't always brilliant do we need to just get over ourselves let them celebrate our culture and bring it to the mainstream I mean, kind of. As the one straight white woman in the room, I'm going to, you know, stand up for my sisters here and say, I don't think it's right that straight cis women are always part of this dominant group. I think, you know, straight cis women are as well oppressed for their femininity, for their womanhood. And uh, yeah, as Callum says, you know, they go, we go to, um, you know, gay clubs or gay spaces because we find kindred spirits there because we feel safe there. Um, And so, yeah, I think there is a fine balance between opening the doors, allowing people in, showing that we are a movement for everyone, where where everyone is safe, where straight cis men are, uh, you know, available and can be to be to cry and to be feminine and to you know have all this emotional side as well, which they're not allowed in yes. their yes. you know usual thing. We are a safe space. Let's yes. try and make that as safe as possible. Yes. All right, Asifa. One thing we haven't discussed is well, you touched on it with the burqa, but um, as an Asian trans woman, what's your take on kind of um, cross cultural appropriation? Because you could argue that um, all cultures feed into each other all the time. They're in a constant state of evolution, borrowing and giving, whether oppressed or dominant. Um, what do you think about that statement, Asifa? Living in the world that we live in today and having access to something that, you know, that I didn't have growing up. I mean, uh, the internet has really made us and cultures so accessible to, to one another. I think the issue comes, again, of not understanding something of, of where it comes from and how you're using it and what context you're using it in. So, for example, when we have LGBT clubs playing... Um, 
music that has been inspired by minority communities, for example. I'm talking about R&B, hip-hop, I'm talking about Bollywood Bangra. A lot of the rhythms, a lot of the, you know, musicalities are in uh, commercial pop music today. And then you have, you know, LGBT venues um, denying um, queer Muslims in on their appearance or that they don't look gay enough or yeah. they're questioning their gayness, then I think there's an there's an issue here. So, um, and these, I mean, what, look, I, yes, I'm from the South Asian community. I'm part of a, a super minority within the, within the queer community. Um, despite being from the largest ethnic minority in the UK, many South Asian queer people feel ostracized from from uh, LGBT venues because of outright racism. And um, I think there's a lot of, you know, is this cultural appropriation or is this blatant yeah. racism? So I think that's what we need to talk about. Ooh, there's so much to talk about. We've only got a couple of minutes left. I want to come back to Benji. I want to look forward, um, particularly for our listeners, can you offer people any advice if we don't want to be oversensitive, we don't want to be poor-faced, but we do want to call out cultural appropriation when we see it and when we think it has crossed a line. I'm talking now about not within our community, but with people outside plundering our community, as in the LGBTQ plus community. I know we've talked about black South Asian. You know, can you give our listeners any... Um, advice can we come to any conclusions i think you know rounding off from the conversation we've just had what's really key is just understanding where things come from what they mean and the impact they have so if you're looking to challenge someone who you feel is appropriating your culture or another person's culture just challenge them on where that element has come from do they know are they aware can they explain it that's a really respectful way to be like, you know, maybe just have a think about what you're doing right here. And if you feel that you can, you know, back it up, you know, you have been allowed permission, you have been allowed credit, then fine. But nine times out of 10, if you challenge someone who is appropriating a culture to explain where, where that element of the culture comes from, what it means, they'll be stuck and they'll get them to think and do their research. Fantastic. That was intense, but enlightening. Thank you very much, Benji and Asifa. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me back. Such a pleasure. Thank you. It was absolutely Thank my pleasure. Thank you so much, Matt. Thanks so much, Asifa. We'll be back in just a few minutes. I love that song. And I love Alex Woolhouse, who's with me for the whole show. But we're going to have a little pause now and chat to you about what you're up to in your life. Oh my gosh. So, I know you work as the pro bono and legal strategy coordinator for Mermaids, mm -hmm. um, the transgender youth charity. Can you tell us a little about how your job helps the trans non-binary and gender diverse community? Because it's a hell of a title, isn't it? Oh my gosh, yeah, it's so wordy. Basically, I organize all the free legal advice that we need as a charity and that we give as a charity so i you know put um young trans gender diverse and non-binary children young people and their families in touch with legal professionals that can give them legal support so yeah that's how i do and when you actually started studying law just uh, rewinding a few years yes. was your aim to help 
the trans community? Absolutely not, actually. I, I wrote in my yearbook at school when I left school that I wanted, you know, in 10 years, I wanted to be in London and I wanted to be fighting for human rights. But Great. yeah, but then I went to university, right? And I went and studied law and I realised that, um, oh, lawyers can actually learn earn loads and loads of money. <laughs> and so I was like kind of dazzled by that and went and did that for a bit. And then as soon as I qualified as a solicitor, I jumped ship and went to the third sector to help trans kids. But I was a solicitor technically for around 12 hours. So <laughs> I think that's kind of worth it for six years of work, really. <laughs> no, tell us um, about your journey um, with your identity as a trans woman. Mm. You have in the past cited the internet and social media as great sources of information and advice on your journey. Um, we chatted about social media last week as a force for division in our community, but presumably you'd say it was a force for the good. Yeah, it was a real eye-opener for me. I was questioning my gender around sort of 2014, 2015, which is known colloquially as the trans tipping point. It's when Laverne Cox yeah, yeah. was on the cover of Time. It's when Caitlyn Jenner came out. It felt like a real moment. I remember. Yeah. We thought it was going to change everything and it would be fine from now on. And then it all went so horribly wrong. But before it went wrong, I was, you know, sort of, there was a lot of journalism that was commissioned by loads of, you know, amazing um, uh, media outlets. And I remember so vividly, there was one article that I was reading and it was by Sean Fay. And love uh, Sean Fay. I know I'm desperate to meet her. Um, I DM'd her about uh, like where she should get her eyebrows done and <laughs> she completely ignored me. But you know, she will rue the day um, when I'm reviewing her book. Um, but anyway, I re remember reading one of her articles and it was, I was, so in this quandary at the time, you know, am I a girl? Am I a boy? You know, something's not quite right. And I was like, I don't know if I'm a woman or not. I don't know. And I read a sentence that Sean either tweeted, it might have been she just tweeted it rather than wrote it in an article. And it was, I don't know how a cis woman feels, but I know that I feel like a trans woman. And I feel connected to all of the trans women in the past and their experiences. And that resonated so much with me. And it was like, okay, I can be a woman. I'm just like Sean. I knew I was just like Britney. I knew I wanted to be a Spice Girl. I can just do it. And then I did. But interestingly, actually, we talk about visibility and representation. And often um, people say, oh, yeah, but that's not as important as as um, hard rights, access to healthcare." Um. Actually, in terms of your journey to becoming the person you were meant to be, if it weren't for the visibility and representation of people like Sean Fay, you, it, well, I, I was going to say you wouldn't have discovered it, but it may have taken no, it's, you longer. It's true. It's true. Because, I mean, I, I now work with trans, gender diverse and non-binary uh, children and young people who are so much younger than I was when I knew. But, you know, when I was two, I was coming home from school and I was saying, you know, oh, when I grow up, I want to be a girl when everyone else wanted to be doctors and nurses and, um, you know, lawyers and stuff. And I knew that I wanted to be a girl. But there wasn't the language that we have nowadays. There wasn't that. Um, and so, yeah, it's the normalisation of that language by all of this amazing representation from Laverne Cox and Orange is the New Black and Jean Faye Jean Fay tweeting, you know, as she does. Um, 
and that, that have given me the language and have they've shared their experiences so I can see myself in those experiences because they weren't on television when I was a little girl. All right. So you are now yourself. Uh-huh. Um, the rumours are true. <laughs> you have a career as a broadcaster. I want to talk about... The he said, she said, they said podcast. Yeah, get it right. I know, I know. That's not a very, that's not a great start. <laughs> the she said, they said podcast, the Mermaids podcast, which you host with our very own from Virgin Radio Pride, Shivani Darve. We love them. What was? Can you tell us about the driving force in creating the podcast? You've talked about, you know, how you got into law and then using that to help others. Mm-hmm. How did you go from that to the podcast? Well, the podcast is sort of born out of this thing where we see all the time in the media, everyone talks about trans issues all the time. Um, And, you know, it's written, it's all written by cis people. We want it so that trans people can start talking about their lives in an authentic way and not just their lives, everyone's lives. We have opinions and we are fully formed people just like everyone else and so it's important to show that and this really I hope I hope that the podcast does show that and yeah I've basically you know have um used my legal brain to uh to, to give advice on on you know how people can do that and people how people uh can be their most authentic selves and you've already mentioned looking up to Sean Fay. Uh-huh. Is there anybody else, actually not necessarily just trans, but anybody else within the LGBTQ plus community that you really look, to, look up to or has helped you on your way or you could recommend to anyone listening who might need um, advice, support? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I go on lots of dates. I'm like Carrie Bradshaw in Sex and the City, but... I'm live in South East London. And on all the dates, all the guys go, you know, what do you want to do? And I'm, I always say, well, one day I want to be on Graham Norton's sofa. That's what I want. That's what I want to do. Those are my goals. Being interviewed by him or doing the interviewing? Either or. Honestly, I don't care. But yeah, like, you know, people like Graham Norton, Rylan Clark were are so amazing for me to see because they are so witty um lily savage i've watched all of lily oh, savage videos on savage. on youtube can i just say about graham Norton? i uh, know he's a brilliant chat show host and radio host for virgin radio uk but he's also a fantastic writer his novels are sensational the last one home stretch is brilliant and opens up another period of gay history callum you would love it um and also, you mentioned Ryland Clark Neal. I think people often, you know, we were talking earlier about um, gay men often not being taken seriously, mm. being dismissed. Um, he's hardcore and he's brilliant. Oh, he's so clever. Ryland is absolutely amazing because he plays everyone at their own game. He uses his femininity, his his um, extraness to be what you know people want to see and it's so entertaining and he's so disarming because of it he can say he can get away with saying so much stuff because he is so you know flamboyant but he's you know just a very shrewd businessman as well like he's so clever and i i really really look up to him okay alex you're also amazing thanks as well as rylan tell us finally where can anybody listening who wants to keep up with what you are getting up to how can they do that? So please follow me on Instagram or Twitter. It, my at is 
at Alex Woolley, W-O-O-L-L-Y. Fantastic. Isn't that good? Alex Isn't that good? Isn't that good? <laughs> I was called Woolly at school. That was my nickname. Then my brother got called Mini Woolly, um, which he obviously hated. Um, but yeah, I'm Big Woolly. <laughs> I'm logging on to Instagram now. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up in the LGBTQ plus community, do cisgender gay men have it the easiest? And if so, is it time we started checking our privilege? Our fab panel are sticking around and we'll also be joined by all author, journalist and longtime activist Paul Burston. I'm Matt Kane, and you're listening to my Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. My terrific panel, Callum McSwiggan and Alex Woolhouse, are still with me. And now we're going to be talking about a new topic. It's one I'm very excited to talk about. Do gay men have it the easiest? So, the LGBTQ plus community in all its forms and sub-communities has a long history of persecution and oppression. But, over the last 20 years, attitudes towards us have improved considerably, at least in this country. Having said that, progress has been uneven. Not every sector of our community enjoys the same levels of acceptance. So the question is, out of all of us in under this LGBTQ plus umbrella, do cisgender gay men have it the easiest? And if so, is it time we started checking our privilege? Again, I'm being deliberately provocative to get things going. I am delighted to be joined by Paul Burston, who's a writer and a journalist. He spent several years as the gay and lesbian editor of Time Out magazine. He's also written six novels, many of them bestsellers. I've read lots of them, and my favourite was the last one, a brilliant psychological thriller called The Closer I Get. He's also the curator and host of LGBTQ Plus Literary Salon, Polari at the South Bank Centre in London and founded both the Polari Prize for Established Writers and the Polari First Book Prize. Paul, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now let's get straight down to business. Do you acknowledge that you're privileged as a gay man? I do, absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned the prizes because actually one of the, in a way that's quite a good illustration, when the prizes began, the first Polari First Book Prize was launched in 2011. And for the first few years, nearly all the submissions we received were from white gay men. Um, there were hardly any from women, hardly anyone from anyone who wasn't white. So there's always been this, you know, we've been the sort of dominant member of our, of our community for a long, long time. Um, and I do think that there are certain privileges that we take for granted. People, I think the word privilege sometimes gets people's People get on the defensive about it because they feel, well, I'm not very privileged. I, you know, I, I'm from a working class background or I've suffered homophobia. And I don't think that we should discount that. I think those things are very true. And I think depending on where you live, how visible you are, I mean, you know, there's passing privilege as well. I know gay men who can walk the streets without being noticed. I don't. I get I get catcalled and harassed and attacked. Tell me about so, it, sister. Those yeah, of us exactly. who are very visible. <laughs> exactly. So there's, there's, a, there's a whole lot of other issues within that discussion. But the simple answer to your question is, yes, we are definitely. 
Um, but I do think it's more comp the, the overall picture is more complicated than simply that. All right. So obviously we are going to talk about intersectionality, all the different factors. Um, but how does it make you feel personally? I know your history as a long-standing activist and some of the experiences you went through um, in the 80s and 90s. How does it feel when younger members of our community who maybe don't know their queer history... Um, engage in kind of gay baiting on principle. All gay men have it so much easier. Does it just show you that um, they don't they don't know their history? It does, and I think I think to some extent. Um, I think when I was when I was nineteen, when I first came out, I was quite unusual in the sense that I I was very hungry for knowledge. And I cultivated a group of friends who were older than me and very diverse, as it happened, just by coincidence. That, that's what they happened to be. Um, so I kind of had a, a, a very, very quick his, history lesson, you know. And I think maybe if you if you haven't had that, then it's quite easy. And it's also it's also part of being part of being you, you know when you're young, you think you're reinventing the wheel, don't you? It's like you know you, you're always the first person to do everything when you're young. That's how it feels at the time. Um, so I, I I get where it comes from. Um, I do find it irritating when people sort of say, make sweeping statements, and then when they're challenged and, and it's pointed out to them where they're where they're incorrect, then they just double down rather than actually listen. That gets my goat because so, I think you should listen. So, have you experienced this? People gearbaiting and throwing the um, the accusation of privilege at you just on principle without knowing about what you've gone through. I I, I have I have had that um, that sort of. That winds me up a bit. What 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 really winds me up is when people rewrite history, and when people talk about a period in which they weren't actually present, and make sweeping statements about it that actually aren't true. So a lot of people. I mean, lately there's been a big discussion around the around the, the queer the word queer, and there was a comment on on social media last week where somebody somebody a young person made a comment saying, "Oh, these queer men who died of AIDS." Well, you know, when my friends were dying of AIDS, they didn't call themselves queer. You know, that is not a word that they call themselves. You do, you do not apply a word to people that they didn't choose. Yes. Especially yes. nowadays when everyone is so conscious of all this stuff. I just find it really irritating and actually quite offensive to um, talk about people in the past who um, didn't identify in, this, in, in that way and certainly didn't feel privileged. Yes. <laughs> if, you were a gay, if you were a gay man growing up in the 80s, you did not feel very privileged, trust me. Oh, and don't I know it, don't I know That's it. Me. Right, I want to bring in our panel here. As Paul said right at the top, it's important to bring in intersectionality. Whether we have it easy or difficult depends on a huge range of factors. Paul mentioned social class, race, to how we present, you know, whether we're whether we have passing privilege. Is it too simplistic? Do you think, let's go with Callum first, to say that cis gay men have it the easiest? Uh, I, I, I think the issue there, Matt, is that um, we're equating privilege with, with ease and we're, we're kind of conflating those two things. I think they're very separate. Acknowledging that you have privilege over perhaps other groups in society isn't saying in any way, shape or form that you have had it easy. <laughs> Um, oh, that's interesting. So, so, what, so how do you define privilege then? So, so, so my my privilege as a white gay man is that I have gone through society. I have, as a white person, for instance, I have not re received racial discrimination in my life. I'm also cisgender, so I've never experienced transphobia. I've never experienced these things, which may have affected my life in a negative way. That doesn't detract from the fact that I have gone through 
quite terrible things for being a gay man, I still have privilege despite the fact that I may have gone through things. And I don't think that privilege negates those things. And I think this is where people get confused and where people can get their backs up and get quite offended and angry about being told that they have privilege because a person still has privilege even if they've gone through the worst experience ever. You know, the, yes. you could have the, gone through horrendous, traumatic things, but if you're white, you still have white privilege. If you're cis, you still have cis, cis privilege, yeah. etc. Absolutely. Right, Alex, you're the only one in this discussion to have experienced life presenting as both genders. Does this give you any insights you'd like to share? Do gay men have it the easiest within our community? Of course I have the insight. I've done it all, Matt, okay? Honestly. <laughs> At one stage in my life, I've been LGBT and plus, okay? So I know it all, okay? Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to be kind of contrarian, actually. I think there are aspects where it's harder for gay men. I think this thing about, you know, whether you are straight passing, I think it's a lot harder to be a gay passing, visibly gay man than a cis passing straight woman when you're going around day to day. I do not experience harassment day to day because I am cis passing. When I was a very feminine little Twinkie gay boy, I did experience harassment. So you can really see that it is more nuanced than that. Yeah. Saying that though, this is sort of, you know, just walking around the walking down the street, are you getting harassed? You know, it's it doesn't speak about, say, the state of trans healthcare or the ability for non-binary people to have recognition in this country. Um, you know, it, it's a lot more nuanced and complicated than that. You know, when we think, you know, is it easy? Is it easier? What are we actually saying? Is it easier to get married? Is it easier to walk down the street? Is it easier to go to the doctor? You know, there's there's so many different questions where I think the answers are different. Um, but yeah, like I said, I've done it both and I prefer it this way, to be fair. <laughs> that is that is fascinating. So I want to read out to you um, the results of a study by eco economist Nick Driadis. I hope I pronounced that name correctly. It was published last month. It found that gay and bi men in the UK earn on average 4.7% less than their straight counterparts, but lesbians and bi women earn 7.1% more. So, discrimination can take different forms, can't it? People may, mainstream society may like gay men, they may want us, may want to go on our gay scene and have us at their parties, but that's different to trusting us in tradi traditionally masculine positions of authority, professional positions, whereas women who present as more traditionally masculine can fare better on this front. Paul, what do you think about all these little complications and nuances we're bringing in? I'm, surp I'm, I'm surprised at that information you just read out. That's really interesting. It is, isn't um, it? But, but often people love get camp gay men, but they don't respect us. Yeah, well, I, I think there's often an element of... Um, Patron up being, you know, us being patronized. I'm going back to what Alex was saying, and I think that's very interesting as well. That the different dynamics, because one of the one of the one of the sort of big moments for me back when I was an AIDS activist was meeting this this chap called Phil Wilson, who was a black gay American AIDS activist from LA, who came over to London to do a safer sex workshop at the London Lesbian and Gay Centre in Cowcross Street back in by '89, and I remember him saying to me that when AIDS activism began in America and people were sort of saying, oh my God, this is, you know, this is, this is, this problem with healthcare, this problem with healthcare. And he was like, you know, he, as a black man, he knew that already. 
And there are so many things that, that, that we as white people don't even think about until, until we're made to think about them. We just take them for granted. I have a, a very good friend who I, I like and admire very much, but he gets so angry if you, if you use the word privilege around him. He just he refuses to acknowledge he has any privilege whatsoever because he's working class and he's at, he's at a very tough time. And he just does not see, refuses to see that there is a racial element going on. He's from a very, he's from a very part of the country, which is lots and lots of different um, races and cultures. And compared to his neighbours, he's had it a lot easier than some people. But he doesn't really see it that way because he gets, he, he feels that he's being under attack if you if you say he's privileged. So um, I think the, the other distinction that was made about between ease and privilege is a really important one as well. Well, you know, we're talking about everything from rights and access to healthcare down to attitudes and um, acceptance. And yes, they are all interlinked, um, as you know from your work as an activist in the 80s, but um, there's big differences as well, aren't there? there? Yes, there are. I mean, you know, when I was involved in ACT UP, I was involved in, one, in the outreach group, among many other groups. I was, I was involved in lots of things in ACT UP, but I was part of the outreach group. And part of my role was to go out with, with another member of ACT UP, a woman, and go to different organisations that we felt we may have common ground with that were also impacted by the AIDS crisis. And what we found was that on the whole, they didn't want to work with us because they saw us as, um, as being gay. And that we, and I was, I was actually told several times, you need to accept that our members are homophobic. Well, no, I don't need to accept that any more than, than you should accept, you know, racism or, or, or sexism or anything else. And there was still the, that, that very entrenched idea that, um, gay rights, as it was then called, came much further down, down, the, down the pecking order and we, 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 we should just put up and shut up. Well, in those days, I remember we, you know, the levels of, the lack of acceptance was so intense that any little crumbs of consolation that we were thrown, we were meant to be pathetically grateful for, weren't we? Yeah, and I mean, and I'm, and I'm, really, I'm really glad that, that young, I mean, I've got a, a gay nephew Who's in his twenties, and his experience of coming out and of, of of being integrated in the community where he lives was very different to mine. And I'm glad of that. I'm glad that he that he didn't he didn't need to become politicised in the way that I did. I'm, that, 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 that's what that's what we fought for, and that's good. That's great. The problem is when people then become complacent, and then they're not prepared when things happen. I mean, you know, recently there's been several reports, and I've been following online of anti-gay attacks happening, you know, in, 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 in Oxford Street, in the middle of Oxford Street, um, in Liverpool, you know, in cities and towns around the country. Um, and I, I think that we need to be vigilant about that. You know, I mean, there's that Peter Tatchell quote about, you know, the, the price of freedom is constant vigilance. And I think it's very true. We, we do need to be vigilant about it and not think that it's that, that because, because we have on paper and in law equal equal rights that homophobia has somehow gone away because <laughs> yeah. it hasn't it really hasn't i am matt kane this is my sunday roast on virgin radio pride and we are talking about gay cis men in the lgbtq plus community do we now have it the easiest i put this on my social media channels i've got some comments from listeners to read out first of all andrew on twitter he says, last, last time I checked, I, as a gay man who grew up in the north of England in the 80s, there wasn't much privilege going on around here. 
Hugh on Twitter says, easiest is relative. You never know someone's whole life story, their experiences, their truth. Who is anyone to judge what's been easy for someone and what's been hell? If we attempt to put oppression and pain into a league table of easiest to hardest, we are no community at all. Finally, I'm just going to give you one more. Rachel on Twitter says, no, our boys don't have it the easiest. We've lost so many to mental health problems. They're just represented the most on TV. That's very different. Mm. Do you think, Callum, people are getting mixed up between levels of visibility and um, representation and how easy certain people from that group who are being represented may still have it? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think Alex touched really well upon this earlier. Is that that it, that those kind of blanket statements are lacking the nuance because there are so many different levels. And if we're talking about visibility and representation on TV, that is just one way in which a person can or or cannot experience privilege. Seeing seeing themselves represented properly is a form of privilege, but that doesn't necessarily mean if we're talking about like body issues, for instance a gay man is more likely to experience body issues over a lesbian woman. So it's like we we shouldn't really be like comparing and and contrasting because it's all about nuance and there are different levels of privilege in different areas of life. Alex, you're nodding. Do you think, is it even helpful to talk about who has it the easiest and the hardest? Is it possible to compare levels of oppression and individual life experiences or do you agree with Callum? I think it is possible because I think with ease and acceptance that also becomes uh, listening so gay men are going to be listened to um more so than trans women um for example so you know we are seeing a, a literally a repetition in the media at the moment of anti-trans sentiment that was in the 80s anti-gay sentiment and you know for people like uh, Paul that um were, were activists at the time know know well the exact same tactics are being used against trans women now 40 years later um so yeah I think there is a um a, a job particularly of for cis gay men to say wait a second this is exactly what was said in the 80s you know trans women are not paedophiles they are not a danger to children or society just as gay men were not paedophiles or a danger to society in the 1980s that's that's fascinating um also paul just picking up on something alex said right at the beginning of that answer gay men are more likely to be listened to these days i have to say i would agree with that um, what do you think? You're nodding. What do you think of that statement? I, I think it's very true. I mean, I, st- and I, st- I still find myself, you know, shocked when I go to certain events and there is a gay panel or there's an LGBTQ plus advertised panel. And it's basically, you know, all, all gay men with maybe one token woman um, or one trans person or one person of color. Um, and I, I, I find as a programmer that, you know, if, if, if you establish a platform in the name of diversity, it's incumbent upon you to then use that platform to, to celebrate and express the diversity within your communities. So for me, when I'm putting together um, events, I work really hard to make sure that they're as diverse as possible because seeing yourself on screen or on stage is important. Having your story told and, 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 and read and recited performed before you is important. If, if all you're hearing is, is, is the voice of one particular substrata of the LGBTQ plus world, then you're not doing your job properly. 
So I, I, I absolutely agree that um, we have a responsibility because we are listened to, to make sure that other voices are amplified as well. And that's what I do with my work. Okay, so you've talked about having hearing our story being told. I want to bring in a couple of important points of history um, to people who might, you know, bandy around um, gay baiting statements like, oh, gay men just have it easy now. Um, so gay men were the most affected by the HIV AIDS crisis in this country. We suffered the most under criminalisation whilst lesbian, lesbian relations, relationships and sex were never criminalised. I know there's extra challenges that come with this and as Alex brought in gay men were conflated with paedophiles certainly for the first part of my life people you know in the mainstream didn't see the difference um do you think Paul that it's important that younger members of our broad diverse LGBTQ plus community know about things like that absolutely and it's all but it's also important that you know even though it's true, I agree with you absolutely, that gay men or gay and bisexual men were the ones who were criminalised until relatively recently, actually. I mean, it was only 2003, I think, that the gross indecency was taken off the statute book, yeah. which was a specifically gay crime. No one else could, you couldn't be charged for that unless you were engaged in homosexual activity. Um, so that's the, the, all that is true. I also think, though, that, you know, lesbians were a huge part of that struggle as well. And certainly when I was involved in ACT UP and when I was involved in the campaign against Section 28, lesbians were at the forefront of that too. It wasn't just, it wasn't just men on our own. So actually, of... yeah, so actually that's... So lesbians were um, being attacked by um, the police and the legal establishment less. So they did exactly what Alex was just saying. They stood up and fought for us. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, Section 28 was the first piece of legislation that actually directly affected them because it because it talked about pretended family relationships and all that kind of stuff. So it was the first sort of piece of anti-lesbian and gay legislation that affected both groups. Um, so obviously there was there was a shared interest in that. But also, I mean, I mean, in terms of the AIDS crisis, lesbians statistically were the least directly affected group, you know, themselves. Yeah. I mean, you were very, you, you, there was, I don't think there still is a single case of a lesbian, lesbian to lesbian transmission of HIV. Um, of course, there were people who, who were lesbian or bisexual who may have contracted HIV in other ways. But they were, despite that, they were, they were there. They were on the front line. Um, and whenever people you know, tell the story of ACT UP or you see images from ACT UP from back in the day, you always see pictures of lots of angry looking gay men in leather jackets. And I was one of those men. So I, we were there. I know right I've seen the pictures. Beside, <laughs> right beside us, there were these women. And I always, make, I always try whenever I share pictures on Throwback Thursday or whenever it is on social media, I always endeavour to find pictures that have got women in them just to remind people that they were there as well. Brilliant. Right, we've only got a couple of minutes left. I want to look forward to the future. So we're talking about bringing about, I'd love to think about how to bring about greater levels of understanding, less attacking, infighting within the community. Callum, what is the key? Is it about teaching more queer history to people within our community and without our community? Or is there something else we need to do? I mean, I'm I'm a I I absolutely am obsessed with LGBT plus history. So I think more more education around that is is incredible. And I mean, we were just talking about um, HIV and AIDS, and I I was surprised when it's a sin came out. Um, the amount of young LG, gay people, LGBT plus people who had no idea, oh, I know. no, no I idea, know. who were watching this television program and being like, oh my god, I didn't know this happened. So I think I would love to see 
more emphasis on our history and talking about our history and also accurately talking about our history because it, it is often very gets very mixed up so i'd love to see that and i would also love um to see a little bit more of us trying to see how we can help each other you know take the conversation away from um privilege i have privilege you have privilege etc and just say okay what my stance in society what can i do to, to to support my fellow lgbt plus siblings whoever they are what can i do to help all right, we've got one minute left. Alex, what do you think? How can we bring about greater levels of understanding between all the different sections of the LGBTQ plus community? I think it's accepting that we are all maligned by cis straight society and that we all have a common goal, which is liberation and equality. Um, that's, that's the same for trans, non-binary and gender diverse people as well as it is for LGB people. And, you know, just because we've got same-sex marriage and just because Tom Daly can win a gold medal. Love him. Love him. <laughs> but, it, you know, it doesn't mean it's not absolutely everything and, and we are not there yet. And if none of us were maligned, we wouldn't be discussing who's the most maligned. Oh my gosh, so, <laughs> so true. If we so get, true. Yeah. Who won? Who won that? I didn't quite care. I didn't if, quite tally. If we can get to that point in the future, that would be amazing. Paul, thank you very much. Before you go, I want to quickly ask you, I see from social media you're writing your memoir. You've been touching on some of your amazing personal history as an activist. How are you getting on? Is there going to be lots of gay history in there? Are you going to educate lots of younger readers? There's a fair, there's a fair bit of gay history in there. Obviously, it's gay history as seen through my eyes, so it's my story. It's not, it's not claiming to be an historical account. It's, it's very much through, through the eyes of one particular gay man. Um, but yes, I mean, it, 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 it. Most, most of the memoir covers twenty years between. I, I, I had two near-death experiences. One when I was eighteen, and one when I was 30, thirty-eight. And so much of the book covers the 20 years between those two experiences, which happens to have been a really seismic period in our history. Fantastic. That was a really quick summary. That's all we've got time for, I'm afraid, but I can't wait to read it. Thank, Thank you again you. for joining us. Thank you. We are nearly at the end of the show. My, my, my. But we've just got time to talk about a little something for a bit of light relief. And that is Love Island. I don't think anyone can have missed it, but it's back on our screens. It's getting lots of people talking on social media. I haven't actually been watching this series, but I know that Alex has. Alex, what is it that you love so much about Love Island? I have been glued to the screen. I basically love Island because it's straight people uh, in at their very best, okay? Um, being straight. <laughs> Um, doing straight things, fancying each other whilst being straight. Um, yeah, I'm just obsessed with it. Also, it's so nice to see, um, you know, representation on on screen because all of the girls have had facial feminization surgery <laughs> and they've all had breast augmentations. Um, so it's, you know, I think it's a very trans positive show, actually, <laughs> despite there not being actually any trans people on there well, yet. Well, no, and that's the point. As we all know, I'm sure most of our listeners heard, a producer earlier was earlier this year was quoted as saying queer LGBTQ plus contestants would pose logistical difficulties. Um, what do you think, Callum? Does he, did this producer, actually I don't know whether it was male or female, does this producer have a point in terms of it being a game or was there something else going on there? 
I think there was something else going on that like, uh, OK, like, yeah, OK. Putting a gay person into the show, you then do have to throw in other gay people. And OK, that that is perhaps logistically difficult, though. That is a terrible, terrible way to put it. But, you know, including bisexual people, transgender people, etc., non-binary people why is that logistically well difficult? i'm pretty sure alex is a super fan have they have had bisexual girls on in the past haven't they? yeah there was oh, okay. actually yeah there was um one by couple oh no one by girl but and she got off with another by girl i think but they couldn't couple up so they uh, couldn't actually you know be a part of it there is the possibility if they did have trans people on that they, this would invite a wave of transphobia from the other contestants. I don't think you are old enough to remember a show called There's Something About Miriam. No, I do. I, I oh am aware of this. I am aware of this, yeah. Which was basically, I mean, I didn't I, I didn't watch it because it was, um, it missed the mark completely mm. in terms of, um, you know, portraying a genuine trans woman's experience. But it was basically some kind of dating show in some setting on a beach. And... The, all these men were competing to date a woman who was gorgeous, who at the end was revealed to be trans. Mm. She was called Miriam in the title. And from what I remember of the reporting of this show, they didn't respond positively to it. Yeah, and I think that sort of uh, would track nowadays. I mean, I date as, as, as a straight woman. I don't always tell them until, you know, I want to tell them until I feel safe telling them. And you do get a whole range of responses. There are guys that are completely nonplussed. There are guys that are into it, far too into it. There are people that get angry that you haven't told them before. But I think that would, you know, all open a really good conversation. I think that the trans woman that they sent in would have to be uh, so strong. And, um, uh, you know, Laura Whitmore, I am single and I am available next summer if you want to uh, send me in. But, um, but, but, but yeah, I think that the not only would the transphobia come from the contestants, I think the British media, the way it is at the moment, I know, I would know. really hound her. Um Callum, so we were talking about body image earlier. You mm. had lots to say on the subject, lots of brilliant things to say on the subject. Um, what do you think, Love Island, what message does it send out to its viewers about um, how we should feel about our bodies, the kind of bodies we should have or aspire to have? Like, I mean, I've got to be honest, I, d I don't watch the show, so I, d I don't know what the body types are on there, but I can I can guess, and I'm guessing it's have a lot Have you not of... seen the show at all? I mean, I've seen like little like snippets on social media. Well, that's all like you this. need to see to get but the body types. Like, it's, There's it's some like big boys, Muscly guys. There's big boys. Okay. Muscly guys taking their tops off, yeah. I imagine. You're right. I don't think they ever put them on. They don't take them <laughs> off. They're not on in the first place. I, I, I think it's... It, it, we, we talked about this really early on in the show, and it was about the magazine sales. Yeah. You know, you, you, you put your, 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 your sexy topless guy on the magazine and then it and then it sells a lot more copies and then it's probably similar with a show like love island it's like i'm sure there's some producer there or something that is like come on let's diversify the body types in the show and then i'm sure there's other people there saying no we're worried about the ratings so uh, it, it's i would i would like to see more diverse bodies but logistically difficult is what they'd probably <laughs> say i'll tell you what alex you are not old enough to remember the first series of big brother which... i am aware of it though well well what the reason i say not old enough to remember i what i remember about it very vividly is it was billed as a social experiment mm. putting all these people in the house together from very different backgrounds and see what happens how they interact and um i would love to know if you think if Love Island were a social experiment, what conclusions do you think 
it would present about human nature, human relationships, gender, equality or inequality. Um, that men are trash, <laughs> okay? And that they don't respect women in the way that they should. Um, yeah, I'm, I I think it kind of shows, you know, the best and, and worst of, of straightness and um, of, of cisness as well. I think that one of the conclusions that we can take from it is that we all know that it would be a lot more entertaining and a lot more interesting if there were LGBT people in there, definitely. Right, that is a brilliant point on which to end. Thank you very much. That's about it for this week. Thank you very much to my guests, Callum McSwiggan, Alex Woolhouse, Benji Cousy, Asifa Lahore and Paul Burston. I'll be back with a brand new panel, some new guests and some new discussion topics at the same time next week. Drop me a line if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to share an experience or just want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, we are on at Virgin Radio UK. Please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. I personally am on at Matt Cain Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. See you at the same time next Sunday. <laughs>